Well, I'm Father Mitch Paco, and welcome to EWTN Live, where we bring you guests from around the world. And tonight, we'll talk about our concept of the separation of church and state. Our guest says that there is no secular or neutral space in society from a Catholic perspective, and that our steady abandonment of Christianity in the social and political spheres of life is one of the reasons we're seeing an increase around the world, including here, in totalitarian attitudes in our politics today. Now, before we get to that discussion, we want to talk briefly with EWTN's Peter Gagnon about some new and exciting things that you can expect from EWTN programming. Peter, what have you got for us? Well, in September, we're going to be debuting some new series. We usually change up our grids twice a year, September and March. So um, the first new series that we have is one actually that um, I think you would like. It's a series called Stones and Pearls, and it's uh, the Rosary in the Holy Land. But it's a, um, they go to the sites throughout the Holy Land. It's a beautiful footage. It was done in conjunction with our, our German, actually, office. And um, Paul Body takes you to the different locations of the different mysteries of the Rosary. So it's a beautiful location, lots of great reflections. And then, so those who watch and pray with your Holy Land Rosary that we still air every day can get more insights on the Holy Land from this new series. Und is es auf Deutsch oder auf Englisch? English. English. There okay. is a German version as well. <laughs> um, the, the second one is, uh, it's our series, we've actually created several mini-series, uh, The Philosopher's Bench with Dr. Peter Kraft, mm -hmm. and um, we're actually going to be giving that a regular series slot because we're going to be shooting, in fact, next week, we're going to be shooting new episodes with him um, on location at Boston College. So. Nice. Um, he hits, sits down with several philosophers. We're going to air the first series we did um, all the way through these new ones. So we're giving them at a regular slot, and he's just great, and, and people really get a lot from that series. And, and he knows how to bring philosophers down so we can understand. It. Absolutely. Hey Absolutely. down so, we, so us goats can understand. It. Amen to that. So, and then um, finally, a program that we're really excited about is um, a new program with Mother Angelica. I say a new program because these were our older programs. But you got Shirley McLean is there. <laughs> Host? It's from the heart with Mother Angelica. We actually are repackaging older programs from. She did a holy hour every week in the in the 80s, and so we've grabbed these programs. We're repackaging them, and so people can get new insights from Mother for those who didn't watch in the 1980s, mm -hmm. and um, and we're revisiting it. So they haven't aired in in a long time, but um, yeah. so these are new series that are going to debut uh, the first week in September. Um, also, on our new grid, we're going to be doing a new uh, programming strip. We do a programming strip like it was one on vocations or Our Lady. The next one is going to be on scripture, mm -hmm. um, where each day of the week people can uh, see a program focused on scriptures. And we're going to be changing up our men's strip in the evening as well, adding some new programming there. Um, so everyone can go to EWTN.com to find out where these programs are going to air in their areas. Oh, and then finally, we are going to be carrying the uh, Consistory of Cardinals events that are coming up from Rome okay. and the Pope's visit to uh, L'Aquila as well. So okay. those are happening this coming weekend. So we'll cover All those right. as well. Yeah, those shows from the 80s, that's when she wore the mini habit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Went all the way down to her mid-calf. So. Mm -hmm. so, but it's Excited. great, great insights from Mother. People will love it. Thank you, Peter. Appreciate it. Mm -hmm. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes with tonight's guest, so please stay with us.
Thank you and welcome back. Our guest tonight says it is time for us to decompartmentalize our faith. What is he talking about? We'll find out. And also re-energize our belief that Christianity is necessary. Christianity is not just necessary in our relationship with God, but it's also essential in the nature of everything public as well. Politics, economics, and all the law, all these components need Christianity. Our guest says that through that the church moves through history as a full participant because we are born into this world. We're social beings. We're also political beings as well as religious beings. And here to tell us more about that is the Director of Catholic Studies at Franciscan University of Steubenville and the author of the book, The Two Cities, A History of Christian Politics. Please welcome tonight's guest, Dr. Andrew Willard Jones. Dr. Jones, welcome. Thank you very much for having Good me. Good to have you. Good it's to an honor. You. you know, first of all, I think part of understanding what you're doing here is to understand what is Catholic studies? Why do you have a department of Catholic studies? Right. And along with that, what did what kind of degree did you get to have <laughs> background? In this? Sure. So, so Catholic studies is a interdisciplinary degree. Mm -hmm. So, it, it, the idea here is that is that Catholicism is universal. So, the the, the no, all, that's what the word yeah, right. so, <laughs> exactly, and, and the and the proper. One of the proper acts of Catholicism is to synthesize different fields of faith in synthesize or fields of knowledge, synthesize them in the faith to, um, to, to, to project them onto the truth or have, align them to the truth. So what can we learn from English? What can we learn from the sciences? What can we learn from psychology? But all of that aimed at the truth, which is Catholicism. And, and in fact, in some of these areas like uh, European history and mm -hmm. European uh, literature, it's hard to understand if you don't have background Absolutely. in Catholicism. How can you read Shakespeare without understanding Catholicism and the Bible? That's right. Yeah, you, you, you really can't. And there's also, it, it's not only to read texts that are Christian, even if we don't necessarily recognize them as being Christian, but it's also to read texts maybe that are written by non-Christians as Christians, read them as Christians. So what we see in the non-Christian is his grasping after God. Mm -hmm. What we see is him, him you know, the, the sort of pathos of sin or of the fall mm -hmm. in him. Mm -hmm. and, and so when we analyze the text, we talk about it in that way with our Catholicism being the lens through which we see all the fields of study. And, and <clears throat> a good example of that for those who went to Catholic schools before the 1968 or 70 is, you know, it would be typical not only to learn Latin, mm -hmm. but to read uh, various uh, Latin writings that had nothing to do with Christianity. Right. right. But you learn from them anyway that there's, you know, how are they dealing with God? morality, goodness, and so on. And you'd read that, that was part of a Catholic education. And that really, it, because what you're learning about is, is 
the human condition, humanity. Yep. And, and, and humanity, and this goes right to our topic for today, humanity is not something other than Christianity. Christianity is about humanity. I mean, yeah. Christianity is, is humanity redeemed and perfected, I mean, or, or the moving towards that perfection. And so, you know, Christianity reveals humanity to itself. Mm -hmm. So it's, again, like, like in your intro, even in literary uh, criticism, without Christianity, are we even capable really of understanding, understanding a text written even by a non-Christian? Yeah. I mean, because without Christianity, we can't really be sure who we are. Yep. And this is, uh, this is a very important thing because what you're doing in Catholic studies, as you said, is to synthesize, mm -hmm. pull these various areas of study together. In the rest of the university, there's an English department, mm -hmm. a science department, history, and they're all doing their own thing, which, right. which is proper for specialization. Absolutely. But someplace they have to come back together. That's right. And so you compartmentalize. That means to put things in different <laughs> compartments. Right. What you're doing is pulling it together, and that's what we want to talk about that's tonight. That's right. Pulling these areas together. Mm -hmm. Now, with politics, how does that need to be pulled together with our Catholicism? Because you're talking about this notion of the two cities. I assume, mm -hmm. well, I, I don't assume I read the book, <laughs> that you're getting this from St. Augustine. That's correct. In his book, uh, The City of God, mm -hmm. right? That's right. So That's right. Tell us about how this comes together. So we're all used, we're all very used to separating our world into spheres, right? So we're used as moderns. We're used, especially moderns who, who live in, in liberal democracies like we do. We're used to there being a political realm and an economic realm and, a, and then a realm of religion, a realm of morals, you know, the private realm. So there's a public realm and there's a private realm and we, and we divide those things up. And even where we, even where we think that one influences the other, we see them as influencing each other sort of extrinsically, right? Like we imagine politics being its own thing and then saying, but really we should have good moral people be politicians, right? And so we, even if we see a connection, we see that connection happening sort of outside of what they are, what those realms are. And so that's what I mean by compartmentalizing, right? We've divided the world up and this, this dividing of the world is itself not neutral. It presents itself as neutral. It presents itself as, what I mean is it says, well, yeah, politics isn't a part of religion because politics is neutral towards various religions, right? But actually, the compartmentalizing itself is making a theological assertion about what religion is. Mm -hmm. And what I mean is the fundamental assertion is that religion doesn't really matter about when it comes to politics, <laughs> right? And so. And in fact, in the minds of some people, when they have politics so focused on economics mm -hmm. that the, the, the president has to help the economy, that you also can remove the moral. If he's going to help the economy, I don't care if he's cheating on his wife or if he's stealing a little on the side or using drugs. I don't care, I don't care about that. That's his personal life. Is he going to help the economy? We, we can further eliminate even issues of morality. That's right. That's right. And, and that and, goes on. 
And that goes to show, that goes to the idea that society is the sort of, the sort of technocratic idea that society is a mechanism or a machine and that we can, we can build it and manipulate it and design it and engineer it and that that engineering is independent of the truth of morality. That in fact, the more sophisticated social engineers would think of morality or what people believe as just one more component in this thing to be designed and, and, and implicate, you know, a plan to be built and then um, just like you would a machine. And so that idea, again, you, it, it, it is the same basic idea that the truth or, or falsity of religion is irrelevant to what's really going on in history, which is politics and economics. Yep. Right. Yep. So that's and so we can talk about religious history if we want, but it's just like talking about maybe literary history or the history of the theater or something. It's an interesting diversion. But the real stuff is politics and economics and economics. And see, right. and that was exact that to, to say that is to say, well, I guess Marx, Karl Marx was right, not Groucho. <laughs> Karl Marx was right, right that it's all about economics. Mm -hmm. And that's all that matters. That's right. And we're saying no. Mm -hmm. uh, it, my, that's, in fact, maybe Uncle Karl Marx, your enterprise collapsed. You know, the, the, the communist economic system mm -hmm. collapsed because you didn't integrate beautiful art, great literature, morality, right. and religion. Right. They That's... saw religion as the enemy. Mm -hmm. And this is true for many of our politicians in this country today. Religion is the enemy. And it's just economics and politics and saving the earth. Yeah, I think what, what, the, what we see a lot in, in contemporary politics is that if religion has political power, then people view it no longer properly as religion. Right. So now it's a perversion of religion. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's some sort of nationalism or some sort of, you know, yeah. political Catholicism or political Christian, you know, it, 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 because religion by rights ought to be meaningless. <laughs> so once it becomes socially significant, now people want to view it as a political thing and, and then go after it politically. That happened just last week when Atlantic Monthly published That's an right. article mm -hmm. saying that Traditional Catholics have weaponized the rosary. That's right. That's, that's a perfect example. Yeah, that's a, a, that, a totally uh, this perfect is example. not some vague theory. This is published by people on the left. And frankly, I sort of like the idea of yeah, them right. being, <laughs> being scared of the rosary. Maybe it's more powerful than they first thought. No, that's and now right. they're scared. But this is what you're seeing there is that liberal, and I mean liberal in the philosophical sense, not necessarily in the partisan sense, yeah. um, that liberal move that, that Christianity has to be kept in a little box. Yes. And, and that little box is the box of the private, where, it's, where, it is, where the rest of the world can be indifferent to what's going on in that private realm. Yeah. And as soon as you're not indifferent to it, now it's a political threat. And so now the liberal regime will turn on it. Yeah. Right. And, and justify it as saying it's not really religion. We have religious liberty, but part of what that means is that your religion doesn't affect the political sphere. And one of the ironies of our culture is that there's a huge industry 
and, a, and this is something that permeates throughout advertising where your own bodily private parts are put into the public. Mm -hmm. How many people are displaying themselves nakedly? And how much industry is there? Billions of dollars in having naked bodies, but your religion, you better cover up. That's right, right. Because that's a switch in our culture. Most definitely. And it even is, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very appropriate um, analogy because the switch is really profound because it's like you should be embarrassed of your religion. But right. not embarrassed like you on your body. Exactly. But we would have said in the past that you would sort of inverted that shame dynamic, yep. right? Exactly. And, and so now the thing you should be ashamed of are, are things like your religion. But, I mean, the, the, the sort of deeper point here is that what's, we're playing with words and that can confuse us because what we're not seeing, what the words keep, make it difficult for us to see is the regime that's that's driving Christianity out is itself religious, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that, that there is no, its claim to neutrality is disingenuous, right? That's not true. So it, it itself has uh, convictions about right and wrong. It has convictions about, it has some version of justice that it's trying to advance. It has some, it has um, even, even I think notions of divinity are, are present there. They're just not transcendent, they're, they're, it's almost a return to a pagan sort of divinity where there are powers and forces in the world. But see, that language is entering our public discourse. He's one of the gods of baseball. He's mm -hmm. one of the football gods. Right. He's a, she's a goddess on stage. And they use that god and goddess language, mm -hmm. you know, in talking about sports heroes, but not about God. That's right. Yeah, that, that is correct. They do. And, and they also don't, we also don't use God, the word God, about things that maybe we ought to. So what I mean is things like, for example, the way people treat the economy, right? Mm -hmm. Where, so we, we, we tend to treat the economy as something that's alive, mm -hmm. that has a will, right? And if we treat it right, we'll be rewarded by it. If we mm -hmm. treat it wrong, we'll be punished by it. <laughs> and there's these experts the economists and the politicians who know the will of the God, the, or the economy. And if we do what they say, then we'll be, we'll be rewarded. And if we don't do what they say, we'll be punished. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is a return to the dynamic of, of pagan gods and their priests and their kings. This also is something that we saw going on in the COVID epidemic. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. That science says. It, science becomes a God. That's right. Mm -hmm. And you, all you had to do say, science, the science says, we're with the science. And it was an absolute thing. Instead of saying, well, this scientist is doing research, and then this one over here has contradicted, that's real science. That's right. When you compare, you know, these scientists are looking at data, they're coming up with different results or similar results. You compare it, but if there were scientists who disagreed with the chosen gods of science, then you got canceled well, as yes. thoroughly as happened during the Spanish Inquisition. It was heresy. So, and this is, this is the, or blasphemy even. I mean, this is the same di dynamic that I'm talking about, that the gods, and this is something that people I think don't realize about, about ancient, about paganism, is that the gods are often cynical. What I, what I mean is, is that they're tools of human power. 
I've mentioned this on <laughs> programs many times. Okay, so that you've got to study the Greek mythologies to see these nasty characters that were the ancient gods. That's right, and, and they're being used by by kings who, who present themselves as the mediator between God and man, the gods and men. So the gods are terrifying, the gods are hard to understand, the gods' will is un inconsistent and, and arbitrary, but I understand the God. Mm -hmm. I know his will. And if you do these things, which always ends up empowering me, then uh, the, we can placate the God. And this is exactly the kind of thing you're talking about with science. It's like, well, how do we know what science says? Well, mm -hmm. these guys tell us what science says. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way we can know because I'm, I'm a weak rube who doesn't know anything about science, but these guys are the scientists, right? And that, again, is a, or, or more often or not, government officials pretending to be scientists. Yeah. But the point, is, the point is that it becomes the gods, these gods that we're talking about become objects or tools, mechanisms of human domination. So again, we're getting back to this idea that religion and politics are not separable, right? That the way in which human beings build, and this historically this is the case, the way in which human beings build tyrannical regimes involves the creation of gods that instill fear in people. Yep. Right? This, has been done, this has been done historically. This is what the communists did with history or with the party, mm -hmm. right? That they become forces in history that, that will, can crush you. And your only safety is that this, this uh, mediator, the party, stands in for you, right? The one, one thing that, that's interesting, though, when you study the, uh, again, ancient literature, mm -hmm. uh, I do a lot of that. As far as I'm concerned, modernity starts somewhere around 200 A.D. <laughs> this is the beginning of the, you know, once the Antonines are uh, See, I think, are I gone, think it starts around 1280. Eighty, oh, no, that's, that's, but anyway, we could have that argument. Yeah, but but one but one of the thing about the ancient literature is that you also see that those same kings that act as if I can interpret the god, the gods don't like them ultimately mm -hmm. and undo them. So you know you you have this in a number of the Odyssey in some ways is about that. That's you right, know, yeah. And, and you also see this in uh, the Oedipus, you know, that you can't fool the gods. And they, if you try to be arrogant, they'll get you. And we see in our own times mm -hmm. that the so-called science gods, now the, the CDC said, well, we got a lot of stuff wrong. Mm -hmm. We messed right. up. And furthermore... We have to redo the seed. So it's the same kind of yeah, you hubris have. that leads to the undoing. Twitter is being exposed for all of its cancellation of people. It's being exposed as kind of hollow. It, it also is a story of the gods getting back at you just uh, when you think you're in control. That's right. And, and, and that, again, so there's, these, there's, there's the, literary, the literary expression of that. But there's also a, uh, what I would want to say, like sociological reality that we can analyze that and understand that. That in order to build centralized tyrannical regimes, you have to build mechanisms of fear, right? Yeah. That's, why, that's how you get people to obey. So people yeah. are afraid. But building, instilling fear is to create a force that you then don't totally control anymore. 
right? So now, in order to in order to build the mechanism that allows you to control it, is also to build something that you begin to lose control of, right? And I think that those that mythology and that literature of the gods is is explaining that because the gods are false, right? Like the gods ultimately aren't real. Yep. I mean, their power is 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 not the power is not necessarily fake because the power can be the power of the society that worships those gods and, and gives punishments and rewards accordingly, according to whether or not you placate the god right. But the point is that the god itself, which is ultimately human power, that it becomes unpredictable. And it actually can even make demands on the people trying to use that god for power, including things like they themselves have to worship that god. Right, and they, and they come to worship that God. And so it becomes unclear who's in charge of who. In a, Christ, a Christian view of this, because this one of the things we always want to bring, we want to bring our Christian understanding. Mm -hmm. And for me, the key to that would be in Revelation chapter 12, where Satan fights against St. Michael and he's defeated. And what is stated now has the accuser of our brethren fallen. That dynamic mm -hmm. that they try, that the, behind the gods is this satanic causing of fear. Behind them is this constant accusation that you're always bad. Mm -hmm. And we can see that it's not, these gods are fake, but it's a satanic quality that constantly accuses to keep control. That's right. And Christ and his angels bring that down. And we have to have a sense as Christians that we are going to be on this other side. That's that right. This, that we put all of that in view. Yeah, Christianity is radically different than this pagan world that we're talking about. Yep. And, and this is the thing that people, we often as Christians forget because we use words like gods and so we think their gods are just like little versions of the Lord God, yeah. but they're not. It's a different thing. And, and one, one of the, there's a, a couple points here that are crucial. One is that, our, is that the Lord God is transcendent, right? So the Lord God's, what, what human beings do is never is always a participation in the truth, but never owns the truth, okay? Which is, so what I mean is our laws are always provisional or our, 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 our structures of power are always attempts at achieving some end that we know ultimately transcends our time and place, yeah. which is, you know, the final We're end. We're doing the best we can to get as good as we so can. So there's a humility like in it. Yes. There's always a humility in, in Christian politics. But then the other thing about it is that because of the resurrection, just to make this very simple, the hold of fear is broken. Yes. So if, if, if you live in a world where fear, where death reigns, so where the resurrection hasn't occurred and that promise isn't, that all Christians don't hold to that promise of the resurrection, then death is the, the, the scariest thing. Right. And, and if the killing of the body is the, the ultimate point, I mean, the, the thing that all desires and, and aversions reduce to not dying, if that's the case, then, then the totalitarian sort of pagan regimes 
can master you. Absolutely. I mean, then, then you are the slave that they get to dominate. Yep. And Christianity then, by, by breaking that, by saying death is not the end, death of the body, we pass through that. Death is God's enemy, mm -hmm. not his friend. And if I'm with God, it's my enemy too. On the side of the other folks, the death is an ally, mm -hmm. either to cause fear or to eliminate opposition. That's right. Yep. But we say, no, death is our enemy, and Christ conquered it, and we are with him. That's right. Ultimately, so even this, our death is a victory. And that, that changes everything. That's, a, that's actually a politically radical move, because with the fear of death moved into a secondary position. So it's not that we're not scared of dying. I mean, of course we are, right? But it's not the ultimate fear, right? It's reduced. Mm -hmm. And, and because of that, there, it, it makes space for human order that is not ordered by fear, right? That can be ordered by love, for example. <laughs> and this is a, a radical <clears throat> breaking in of an alternative politics that, that, occurs, um, that occurs with the advent of Christianity. But it is just as total. And what I mean is that the effects of that theological event, that supernatural event, are as totalizing um, over the whole political and economic realm as the pagan world was both a religious and a political and economic world. Yeah. Right? It is as unified. Yeah. It's just different. And this is something that, you know, we have to, you know, grow in our closeness to Jesus Christ so that this Christian worldview takes hold of the way we see economics, mm -hmm. business, our politics, morality, and not say, well, you're trying to impose Catholicism. Nope. I'm simply trying to bring about, not a political movement, but the truth that God reveals. Now, we have to take a break. Okay. Um, but we're going to come back with your questions and comments, so please stay with us. Welcome back. Before we get to uh, questions and, and other comments, I just want to mention something that was sad last week. Uh, a good friend of mine, and of course uh, a great friend for all of us here at the network, was Sister Antoinette. Sister Antoinette belonged to the, the convent here. She came originally from the Northeast, but she also uh, worked at the New Orleans Symphony Orchestra where she played the violin. And then she entered the convent here. And you can see a picture of her and Mother Angelica. And Sister Antoinette used to play the violin at Mass very frequently. But something that she and I did together was play the music 
in the Holy Land Rosary. Now, you know, we, we mentioned it earlier today, Holy Land Rosary is shown every day and has been since 1993. It's getting a long time. But uh, she did the music, she played the violin, and you can hear the mandolin in there. I'm playing that. So let's take a quick look at that. So just to remind you. So she was a wonderful musician and just an absolute delight. So we ask you and your charity to remember her and your prayers and mass intentions. I was able to offer mass for last week, but God bless her after her great struggle with cancer. And, you know, I'm sure our Lord is eager to see her. All right. Um, again, we've been talking today with Andrew Willard-Jones the author of a book called The Two Cities, A History of Christian Politics. And you can see that this is a lively issue. Now, this is item number 262. It's, it's available at EWTNRC.com. You can get it there. It would be good, for, especially for any of you who are trying to work your way through political and economic questions today. Um, it'd be very, very useful to get much wider perspective than we could even begin to, to scratch the surface uh, today. So it's a great book. You ready for some questions? Sure. Let's, Let's do start it. off with this gentleman here. Sir, where are you from? I'm from Bowie, Maryland. Good to have you. Welcome. And what can we do for you today? Appreciate your discussion today about how Christianity moves away from a politics of fear towards a politics of love. I was wondering if you could flesh that out a little bit more about what that means and, and beyond just oh, bringing a, a good morality, right? Because right? you talked about the neutrality of the state, you know, critiquing that. So if you could get into that and flesh it out uh, for the common average Joe, what does it mean to bring love from a Christian sense of love into politics? Thank you. Okay. So I think the way I'd want to begin there is actually to talk maybe about the Roman Empire, the conversion of the Roman Empire. Okay. All right. Because yeah. I actually think this is a historical example that's appropriate given our, our, our time and place. But mm -hmm. that, so love, a politics of love. What, what I want to get there at there is love, love, is a, love is an interesting dynamic, right? Because love makes you vulnerable. What I mean is, is that when you, when you love somebody, you acknowledge and you actually sort of grant them the power to hurt you. So you love them and there's a vulnerability in that love and there's a trust and a hope that is there. And that's in a lot of ways the essence of, of a, or at least a, a decisive aspect of what it means to love in a Christian manner is to love without the expectation of some return. Right? In fact, what you may get back is, is pain conceivably. All right. So that love. So if you, if you, if you can project your mind back into the Roman Empire that is dominated by fear and by power and by domination, you know, the just the power of force. 
And then you have these communities of people that are ordering themselves according to love. So what I mean, like the early Christians are ordering themselves according to serving each other, serving weakness, not attempting to protect themselves from the pain that others might try to cause, but opening themselves to the possibility in service to, the, to their community. And, but, and that pain include not only serving and giving of themselves, but perhaps dying because well, of that's, it. Well, that's where this goes, is yeah. that that is, already, that is already an ordering towards martyrdom. So, right? so what I'm saying is that, is that it's already, you're already accepting that, that avoiding hu- pain, earthly pain, is not the objective of life. And, and so when the government, when the state says, we're going to kill you if you don't do these things, right? then the martyrs are able, from the same position that their communities are based on, that same understanding of love and service is the same thing that enables them to face the lions, right? Because they've already made that move. They've already stopped living a life that's focused on avoiding death, right? And so that, my point there is that that is what attracts the Romans to the early Christians, is it's not only the pagan Romans, is it's not only their communities, it's not, it's not merely their martyrdoms. It's not merely their communities. It's exactly that their martyrdom and their communities are the same thing, right? The same dynamic is what makes both of them possible. Yeah. And so because of that, then, the, that reality that the pagans are uh, observing presents them with a credible alternative to paganism, yes. right? To the pagan totalitarian state. It's like, look, these people are claiming to live lives of peace, and they are. Right? Like they seem peaceful, they seem happy. And then they're not even scared of the ultimate power of the emperor, the ability to kill us. That doesn't even disrupt their, their peace and their happiness. Right? So this, is, this presents a real alternative of social order that's not based on top-down power. Mm-hmm. So that, the reason why I bring that up is because the, the question, what does it look like? Well, what it looks like, one of the, one of the fundamental aspects of what a politics of love looks like is that it's a political regime that does not seek to dominate and control all the pieces, but that has an openness to it. And that openness is a place that allows for human flourishing, human flourishing within human communities of charity. Yep. All right, so what I mean is, is it allows for diversity of communities. It allows for um, what we would think of as like freedom, <laughs> okay? So yeah. that you can live your life in different ways. And it doesn't view, it doesn't view differences as always um, a threat because it understands that it, it has in it that, that trust and that hope that is willing to take a risk on people. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, and uh, for me, a classic example of that was the, during the uh, Episcopate, the, the time of the life of St. Cyprian, mm-hmm. who was a bishop in North Africa and, and in Carthage, a major city. And he, the Christians were being persecuted. The emperor was giving an imperial-wide uh, persecution. Mm-hmm. During the persecution, a plague broke out. And Cyprian and his Christians came up with a brand new concept, the hospital. Mm -hmm. 
Christians invented the hospital to take care of the dying pagans that were trying to persecute them. And they also knew that when the plague was over, they'd go back to persecuting. But they did it anyway. Right. And that would be a great example that, you know, the Christians show love to the persecutors because it's what Christ expects of us. And the thing, the thing that's amazing about this is that the Romans convert, right? So very often we have this, we tell this story as if the Christians are outsiders or coming from outside, like there's the Romans and then the Christians. But the real history is that the, the Romans are the Christians. <laughs> I mean, the Romans are converting to yes. Christianity and, and Christianity is a Roman phenomenon. I mean, as it becomes a world historical movement, it, mm -hmm. it is as a Roman phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And so it's Romans who are Christians mm -hmm. and it's pagan Romans who are converting and pagan Romans who are persecuting them. And, and the reason they're converting is because what the Christians are offering is demonstrably superior to what they're living. Yeah. Right. That's the reason why the Christians ultimately win. And one of the demonstrations of that is the willingness to suffer even at the hands of the emperor. So in our own world, there's a, it's, it's a, like people say, well, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to act? And if, you, if your mind goes directly always to um, the highest levels of politics and trying to gain control of power and then using that power, and yeah. then, then you're, in a lot of ways, you're thinking like the way they do, <laughs> yep. right? Like you're thinking like the way the opponent does. And that the, the inversion that Christianity offers is that, no, we can start here. And, and, and start, an or, start building a social order that is built on different premises and the, the people who are subject to the tyrannical regime will see it. When we look back in history at various Catholic leaders, especially clerical leaders, you know, bishops and priests, cardinals, who did try to get that power, Mm -hmm. Classic example would be Cardinal Richelieu right. in, in France. France. He was much more a politician than a priest of God. Mm -hmm. And we, he has little influence on us. He's not the kind of character. The ones who try to get that power as the secular-minded and pagan-minded mm -hmm. directed end up becoming people of little consequence. We don't look back to Julius II as any kind of a hero uh, for trying to fight wars and wearing armor and going off to battle. Mm -hmm. But we do look to Pius V as an ongoing hero who still affects our faith by the way he promotes the rosary to pray in dangerous times. Mm -hmm. um, or someone but, like St. Louis IX. Yeah. France, who, yeah, yeah. who is the most powerful king in Europe at the time, but, but does not use that power in order to try to build a structure of power for himself, but instead uses it in charity to try to create a society of peace and justice. Yes. Right. And so there you can start to see, well, what does a Christian politics look like? It's like, well, well, it looks like human power always being used for the people over whom it's wielded and never for the one who wields it. Yes. Right? My power is for those who are weaker than me, not for myself. And if you can imagine, you don't have to imagine a world without power. You imagine a world where power is always ordered in that way. 
and you're beginning to imagine what Christian power looks like. But see, that's spoken like a father of nine. Right. <laughs> that, you know, which you are. Yeah. And that you earn money, not so that your kids will worship you, but you earn money and get things and run your family so they become good Christians. Right. That's the goal. And this is what, uh, and too many Catholics have sent their children to Catholic school, not because they wanted to imbibe the faith, but because it's a better education, they can get into a better college. Yeah, I mean, this very, is, very often the family is the place where we can go to for examples because it's, it's, it's something we're all familiar with and that it's like, a, it's like almost universally a vestige of what we think ought to be a loving society. Yes. Right? Everybody thinks that. And so we believe a loving society is possible, at least there. Yes. Right? It seems like everybody believes that. And what does it look like? And it looks like, not everybody, but most people do. <laughs> and that it looks like what you're talking about, parental, um, per, like the use of, of parental power for the children, which in, in, it doesn't mean doing whatever the children want. No. It means, it very often means causing the children discomfort and, and they're upset with you, right? Because you're using your power, including your intellectual power and your own virtue for their good, even if they don't know it. Yep. And that, and so Christian power, political power, would, would take on that sort of a model. Um, and that is radically different than what we would talk about as a tyrannical form of power, which would be power for the good of the one who wields it, used for the good of the one who has it, which we would all recognize as being an abusive father, say. Yep. Right? And there's no doubt that that's abuse. Yep. Exactly. Let's take another question. You have a question or comment? I do. Um, I guess my question would be, how do you respond when someone says that Jesus was a socialist or <laughs> any other, I guess, political ideology they project onto our Lord? How yeah. do you respond or answer to that? Okay, great question. Okay, so now it's a, it's a difficult, it's somewhat of a difficult question. I'll try to get at it. Political ideologies are modern, right? So socialism, liberalism, nationalism, these are modern, modern mechanisms of thought that, uh, that were invented in order to build systems of domination, okay? So they're corrupt. So it, all, the political ideologies are all mistaken, but they're all not 100% mistaken. They, they contain kernels of truth. And so both, both socialism and liberalism, at least initially, are in a lot of ways heretical. Like there's things in them that are true about human beings and yeah. about society mixed with a bunch of falsehood, right? They're not pure false, yeah, purely false. Right. Right? And so it is the case then that you can see, and in fact, they both flow out of Christendom, out of Christianity. So they both, both liberalism and socialism are sort of, you know, um, what's, what's the word, haunted by Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so you can read that back into the gospels and try to pick out the things that seem to correspond to those ideologies, but you're doing a you're methodologically, you're doing everything completely backwards. You gotta flip it around, the gospels first, and then those modern ideologies are acts of apostasy right. away from the gospel. Yeah, if you do it, the, you know, where you're looking and trying to find your ideology in the gospel, you're using Jesus. That's right. Instead of becoming subject to him. That's right. 
yeah. yeah. So there are things, there's no doubt, a lot, and this is, I don't want to get too controversial, I guess, but a lot of people who are upset with people pointing out socialist inclinations or echoes in the gospels are often people who are mad because they want there to be capitalist stuff in there. <laughs> and so someone suggests socialism and they get bent out of shape, but it, it, it can work in the reverse too. And what you really need to do is open up, open up to hear what the social message of the gospel actually is. And, and it is definitely, it, it, it's nowhere even resembles any sort of ideological socialism, which is pure materialism and yeah. atheism. I mean, that's absurd. But there is most certainly an idea that property and the ownership of property is for the common good. Yeah. That the amassment of wealth for yourself is something that you ought not to do. Yeah. Right? This, is, ought, this is pretty clear. <laughs> your treasure needs to be in heaven. That's right. Not your own and so any, any sort of treasures that you might control, you have to use for the poor mm -hmm. in some sense. Yeah. Right? Yep. So... <laughs> Um, and, and it's not necessarily, a Lord didn't call for the state to be in charge. Of course of not, yeah. <laughs> All right, we have another caller. Oh, Claire? Yes. You're in South Carolina? Yes, Father, I am. And what is your question? I have a kind of like a two-part question. I understand the separation of church and state, and I always wondered why during COVID, um, the church was kind of, seemed like it was forced to shut down mm -hmm. from the state. But then I also have my second part question is, was there any time in history that the church was forced to shut down, like during a plague or a yellow fever or any other time? That's my question. And I thank, thank you. Thank you, Michael. No, question. that's a good question, Claire. Um, I mean, I guess I'll take the second half first. I, I'm very, very temporary. I'm, I'm aware of extremely short term you, you know, uh, quarantines of neighborhoods and things like that. But even during the plague, even during the Black Death, you know, in the 14th century where 60% of the population died, they, the priests would come around, even if they couldn't have mass in the churches, they would come from win the window to window and they had like really long sticks that they put the Eucharist on and, and, and administer. So, I mean, even, even in those sorts of scenario, um, I think the sacraments were were being offered that the time when they stopped was interdict, which is a, which is a, a, a disciplinary measure or a right. censure. But not, but, but that would never be all over. No. It was just where there was this punishment. Well, a punishment, for, some sort of problem. But that's the closest you get yeah. historically are, are instant instances of interdict, yeah. I think. Now we have just about 30 okay. seconds for the other part. Um, you know, why did the oh. church shut down? I, I, Frankly, they were afraid of people dying. In the early stages of the COVID, they didn't understand what was going on, they didn't know how it was spread, and we were getting contradictory uh, advice from the government. We were told, don't wear masks, gotta wear masks. Mm -hmm. and it, it went back and forth. And so the, the, the church was being extra cautious so our p vulnerable people, especially the elderly, would not die because mm -hmm. we knew that the elderly were dying. So that was the reason they did that. But could have rethought some of it. Again, the book that we're discussing is called The Two Cities, A History of Christian Politics by Andrew Willard Jones. You can get this at EWTNRC.com where it is item 262. And 
Thank you for being with us. Appreciate it, Dr. Jones. And may the Lord bless all of you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We can bring you Dr. Jones and all of the other guests that we have and these new programs that are coming up only because this network is brought to you by you. We don't have advertising. So we ask you like Mother used to do. Please keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill, and we'll be able to pay our bills too. God bless you and thank you.